You know, as I, uh, as I flew across the Atlantic last night, I, I wondered what, what kind of expectations, if any, that you were going to bring with you this morning. Um, like, um, oh no, he's back. Uh, and I, I really did like that sample guy better than, than him. And, 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 and that's very understandable. Or, um, maybe it was, well, um, it's back from a missions trip. You know what that means. We're going to talk about the Great Commission and evangelism and stuff. Not that those are bad things, but they, um, they are predictable. And where did he go? Where did he go anyway? I mean, uh, he went to, uh, he went to India, I think. India. So I know what he's going to do. He's going to come and he's going to, he's going to tell us about how bad all they have it over there in India and how good we've got it over here and, and all that about just how India is different. Well, I'm not going to do that. Um, I might do some of that Wednesday night, so if you're interested in having some kind of input for about for India, you might want to come Wednesday night. That's what I'm going to do then. But and then perhaps the the, the coup de grace was uh, money. He's going to ask for. He's going to say more money because uh, you know with more money we could just about bring in the kingdom of God on earth. Is that enough cynicism for you? <laughs> um, maybe you're here with this expectation. The, you're eager to hear about the, all of these fresh stories that come from the Himalaya and the heights where the air is pure and, and, and uh, rare and, and most of the stories are missional. Well, I, I may, I may disappoint both of you. That is cynic and enthusiast. Um, because I'm, I'm not gonna do any of that. Um, I, I hope I don't disappoint you. I can tell you this much. I, I asked God from the moment that I left, to the moment that I returned, that he would, that he would speak to me so that I could, that I could speak to you, so that I could say something to you that he had first said to me. And, and I, and I hope he has. I, I trust that he has. I'm, I'm not, I'm not positive of that, but I, I, I trust that he has. But I have to tell you, it wasn't what I, it wasn't what I expected. In terms of what, what I think he impressed on me. I, I lived for 14 days with at least one ear cocked towards heaven in the hope that something stirring would, uh, would kind of find its way into my auditory canal so that I, I could come back and, and share it with you. And, um, and the, early on, what I decided is this. I decided that since I was going to be in India immersed in Pauline theology, uh, maybe you don't know, but I was asked to teach the doctrine of justification by faith. And, um, 
that, of course, is uh, a great Pauline doctrine. He, he, he addresses it in the book of Galatians and, of course, at great length in the book of Romans. And So since I was going to be in Pauline's uh, work anyway, I decided that what I was going to do while I was away is that I was going to study Pauline epistles in the hope that that, that great missionary... I mean, the, the, the church's greatest missionary, Paul, would say something to me that would, would be pertinent and relevant and prosperous and beneficial for you. So I studied Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. And um, he did say... There, there was something that came out of there, but it wasn't what I expected. It wasn't what I had thought. It wasn't even in the world that I thought that I would be talking to you about this morning. What, what I noticed in those three epistles, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians, was that there was not one word in there about the Great Commission. And there was very little in there about money. Now, there was one statement. There's, there is some in, in the book of Philippians. But that's really Paul thanking the Philippian church for uh, meeting his needs. He's not too much trying to raise money. But he was really talking about their generosity to him. Um, and And... Having recognized that, something struck me, and, and I'm, I don't want to. I don't want to. It was just a theme. It was maybe not the major theme of those books. It, 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 call it a minor theme, but I can tell you this: it was in all three of them, and actually, it was even in this letter to First Thessalonians, which is another city, but uh, is not. It's sometimes considered a pastoral epistle and not a, a, a uh, just one of his. Epistles like Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. But it was in there too. And, and I wondered um, if, if that was one of the emphases that he was making to all of those churches in, in Colossae and in Philippi and in Ephesus and in Thessalonica. Maybe that was the theme. That was the thing that that I, um, I, I needed to say to you. What I noticed that Paul was that Paul had a sense of urgency. And it wasn't so much about raising more money. Isn't that interesting? I mean, you would think uh, in, in the 21st century evangelical church that first thing that you need to do is go raise a lot of money. Uh, that didn't that didn't occur to him. And interestingly, there wasn't that much in there in those three epistles about outreach or church expansion, which you know I guess we're supposed to be talking about. But but I want to show you what I think was a theme of his. Again, let me say it's not the major theme. I, I, I'm not. I'm not saying that. It's just something that 
As I read through those three epistles, I found it every in, in every one of them. And then as I picked that up, I thought, well, I'm going to look some more. And then I found it again in the, in the book of 1 Thessalonians. And I thought, this is not only the greatest evangelist that ever lived. He's the greatest pastor that ever lived. And if it was important to this pastor, him, to tell those people this, then it ought to be important to me to tell you this. So that's what I want to do. So if you've got a Bible, uh, open it to the book of Colossians. And let me say, I'm reading to you from a different Bible this morning because this is the one that I took to India because it's smaller. <laughs> it's lighter. And so when you're lugging around things all around um, the world, please, when you try to lug around anything in the city of Mumbai, uh, chain it to you. Um, but anyway, I took a smaller Bible. And um, I want to read you just a paragraph um, in chapter 1 of the book of Colossians. So let me read the paragraph and then we'll, we'll, I'll make the point. We'll be done. Verse 9. For this reason we also, since the day we heard of it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and in increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long-suffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to, the, to be partakers in the inheritance of the saints in light, in the light, he has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of his son, of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, invisible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Now guys, it's really hard to tackle a, a, a text like this, a, 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 um, a paragraph like this. And the reason that it's hard to tackle is because there's, there's so much contained in it. And, and I know that, that y'all all make fun of me, uh, um, uh, talking about how long we are taking to study the book of Romans. I see you in the halls whispering. I know what you're talking about. I mean, is he ever going to get through with Romans? But but it seems to me that, that if the Holy Spirit went out of his way to take the trouble to include something in this book, then then we ought to take a moment or two to take a look at it, you know? And that's what we do on Wednesday nights. But all of that to say that to adequately tease out all that is in this paragraph that I just read you would take would take weeks, weeks. 
And, and I'm not going to do that because I'm only going to spend about 25 minutes with you on it. And, um, and um, but to, just know this, that if we were to adequately deal with this paragraph, it would take weeks. The only thing that I want you to see uh, and the thing that I want you to the, the takeaway this morning um, is something that he says in the opening words of verse 10. He says, that you may walk worthy of the Lord. (laughs) He says that in Ephesians. He says, walk worthy of the calling. He says it in Philippians. Let your conduct be worthy of the gospel. He says it in Thessalonians in chapter 2, walk worthy of God. In each of those epistles, he exhorts his audiences to walk worthy. And he says that same thing in a lot of different ways, um, but it's the same gist as as he tries to rally the troops and God's people to... To, uh, to raise the ante. You know, um, Paul, among other things, I, I called him the great evangelist. I called him the great pastor. But he, and he was. And, and one of the things that he does is that he's an exhorter. He's an exhorter of God's people. He's not a slave driver. He's not a manipulator. He's not a guilt producer. In fact, in a lot of ways, and in several occasions in, in his epistles, he reminds me of a football coach. You know, in, in those, in those pep talks before the game, you know, in this, this past football season, the, the television networks would take you into the locker room and, 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 and let you watch the, um, the coach try to, you know, give the pregame pep talk. And some of those coaches I thought were, they were, they were dull. They were, that wouldn't inspire me to do anything. But some of them, some of those coaches, I mean, they were barn burners. I mean, they, they wanted to light a fire and I don't know if you ever heard about the, the, the coach who had his team in, the, in one of those locker rooms and, and he was, had them all trying to work him up into a fervor. And I mean, he was, you know, breathing and spitting and, and he just, and he said, not men. I want you to go out there and I want you to do something that you've never done before. When <laughs> I thought that was funny, but, um, <laughs> but but that's the kind of uh, you know you you see some of them do that that kind of rousing. But Paul does that. Maybe not like a football coach, but he's he's exhorting the players. He 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 wanted he wanted them to play hard. And so what he did was he reminded them that there was a lot at stake. Walk worthy of the gospel. Walk worthy of Christ. Walk worthy of God. By the way, those are all the text. He, he, he changes the, the words, but, and then he says, walk worthy of your calling. Notice, ladies and gentlemen, whose reputation is on the line based on how I walk. 
And the words that I, that I want to ring in your ears when you leave here today. It's just those two. Walk worthy. There is a God to be honored. There's a gospel to be, uh, to be treasured. There is a Christ whose reputation can be tarnished all based on how I walk. And yes, there is an unworthy walking. Paul, as you know, often often likens the, the Christian life to a walk. You know, it's not a I mean, he, he does talk about a race one time, but most of the time it's a walk. And walk is one of the most one, mundane things we do. It's just one foot in front of the other, right, left, left, right. Uh, and, and that is to be done, that, that, that walking is to be done with a very keen awareness that there are standards. And that those standards are high. And, and I am someone who claims to belong to this Christ. And for the, those of us who do, who claim to know him, there are standards. And they are high standards. Susie and I stayed in a, in a hotel, um, Right, almost, almost next to the Schiphol Airport. Schiphol Airport is in Amsterdam, and and uh, you know, in the morning, you um, breakfast was included, by the way, and and uh, they they offer papers and and the English speaking papers. They got a lot of Dutch papers and German papers and French papers, and they got a couple of American papers. And this is the one that I'd never seen before. It's called the International Herald Tribune. It's the global edition of the New York Times. I, I don't know, but anything. I read it oh several days, and I don't think they ever had a positive article in here. And the whole thing. I mean, the whole thing is about recession, and I mean, it's just. And you heard, of course, that Latvia has has now kicked its government out because of the of the of the um, recession, et cetera. Anyway, but I read that, and uh, on Saturday morning, February the fourteenth, Valentine's morning, um, after reading every article that was in there that was negative, there was one article that I found oh so interesting. It was an editorial. It's it's this one, and it was written by a guy by the name of E.J. Levy, who is the um, uh, creative writing instructor at uh, the University of Missouri. And he was writing about the um, the uh, peanut controversy in that Georgia plant, which led to that whole salmonella outbreak. The title of his article is "The Maggots in Your Mushrooms." And, um, and, and he was talking about how this, this, this company that is the center of the, perhaps the most, um, uh, the worst food contamination scare ever in the history of America. And, and, and he kept saying that, that with each new, um, um, discovery, it was getting worse and worse and worse. That is about what this plant had done, this peanut plant in, in, in Georgia. 
And so in this article, um, Professor Levy did a little bit of research and he goes to the FDA, the federal drug and, uh, and the, federal, the food and drug administration, and he obtained from them an article, no, a pamphlet, a pamphlet about what they were, what was known as natural contaminants. That's a quote, natural contaminants in the food supply. The, um, the, the title of the article is the food defect action levels, colon, levels of natural or unavoidable defects in foods that present no health hazards for humans. Just like a government agency and have a title like that. Uh, this comes from the FDA, from the Center for Food Safety and Applied Nutrition. Uh, and in this, this pamphlet is, it's establishing acceptable levels of such Defects, they call them, uh, in a range of food products, um, everything that we eat. So can I read you just a few of these paragraphs out of this article? Among the booklet's list of allowable defects are insect filth, rodent filth, both hair and excreta pellets, mold, insects, mammalian excreta, rot, insects and larvae, which is to say maggots, Insects and mites, insects and insect eggs, drosophilia fly, sand and grit, parasites, mildew and foreign matter, which includes objectionable items like sticks, stones, burlap bagging and cigarette butts. Tomato juice, for example, may average 10 or more fly eggs per 100 grams which is the equivalent of a small glass of tomato juice, or five or more fly eggs or one or more maggots. Tomato paste and other pizza sauces are allowed a denser infestation, 30 or more fly eggs per 100 grams, or 15 or more fly eggs and one or more maggots per 100 grams. This is the worst. Canned mushrooms may have over 20 or more maggots of any size per 100 grams of drained mushrooms in proportionate liquid, or five or more maggots, two millimeters or longer per 100 grams of drained mushrooms in proportionate liquid, or an average of 75 mites before provoking action by the FDA. I'm almost finished. The sauerkraut on your hot dog may average up to 50 thrips and when washing down those tiny slender winged bugs with a sip of beer, you might... You don't drink beer, now do you? <laughs> you? You might consider that just 10 grams of hops could have as many as 2,500 plant lice. Yum. That's in the article. <laughs> Giving new meaning to the idea of spicing up one's food, curry power... Powder is allowed 100 or more bug bits per 25 grams. Ground thyme up to 925 insect fragments per 10 grams. Ground pepper up to 475 insect parts for 50 grams. One small shaker of cinnamon could have more than 20 rodent hairs before being considered defective. Peanut butter, that culinary cause celebra may contain approximately 
145 bug parts for an 18-ounce jar or five or more rodent hairs for that same jar are more than 125 milligrams of grit. In case you're curious, you're probably ingesting one to two pounds of flies, maggots, and mites each year without knowing it. A quantity of insects that clearly does not cut the mustard, even as insects may well be in the mustard. All of that approved by the food and drug. That's all allowable. All allowable standards established by the FDA. But I think you would agree they're rather upsetting. The FDA, the FDA is okay with you eating a fly or two. So the next time you want to complain to the waiter that there's a fly in your soup, you better hope he doesn't work for the FDA. That's allowable for the FDA. But ladies and gentlemen, I have come from halfway around the world to tell you that we as the people of God, we have way too many maggots in our mushrooms. If I could say it a bit differently, our idea of what it means to walk worthy with Christ has somehow been so lowered to the point that we who belong to him are no longer recognizable as people who belong to him. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I I am not here to say, oh, how wonderful are those Christians in India. Oh, they may be. But it would be silly for me to try and evaluate their service to Christ when I know so little about them. What I am simply saying is that Christians in India and Christians in Germantown are called to walk worthy of the Christ who died in our place. Indian Christians have certain challenges that they face. And some would say that their challenges are far greater than the challenges that we face. I'm not so sure. I don't know what could be more numbing to the soul than having every possible distraction that money can buy. Like we do. But whatever your circumstances, whether you're an Indian Christian or a German Christian or a German town Christian, the Lord Jesus deserves that we walk worthy of him. That we live a life knowing and pursuing the high standards that he has set. Well, I'm Dr. Young. That's kind of confusing because which ones are you talking about? Which, 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 which standards are you talking about? 
All of them. Our families, our recreation, our, our conversations, our time, our marriages, our, our literature, our TV watching, all of it. Of all of it, might it be said of us that those folks walk worthy of Christ. Their lifestyles befit the fact that they belong to a king. Well, Dr. Young, I mean, uh, um, tell me where to start. I mean, uh, I, I mean, I, I don't know where, I don't know where I should start. Well, I don't know where you should start. I know where I gotta start. You go figure out where you need to start. But I can tell you this much, ladies and gentlemen. There is a world out there that is right now disoriented. From Dubai to Denver. From New York to New Zealand. From Latvia to Los Angeles. People are scared and they're wondering what next. I don't know what next. But I know this. I know that Jesus Christ is worthy of your life. And if you have not yet given your life to him, do it now. Don't wait another second. But if you have yielded yourselves to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, I have come here to tell you what he expects of us. That we walk worthy. That we live a life that in every way reflects his beauty. That this one life that I do have, that one day it might be said of it, he walked worthy. As a husband, as a father, as a wife, as a mother, as a student, as a neighbor, as an employee, as a friend. No matter what you're facing. And I know some of you are facing some bad stuff. And I'm not sure how that's going to work out for you. But all I can tell you is. The next step you take, you make sure it's a step that's worthy of Jesus Christ, whatever it is. I'll tell you one more story and I'm done. My first job out of college was, um, of course, with Procter & Gamble. And um, my first boss was a guy by the name of Woody Klein. <laughs> Woody was a he was a nice guy. He was an affable fellow. He wasn't what you'd call a real looker. But, um, and it always irritated me that he, um, and I thought he was always flirting with my wife, who 
was a looker, and, and still is quite a looker. Um, <laughs> oops. Uh, <laughs> that was close. <laughs> um, anyway, I, I guess, I don't know this for sure, but I guess a part of his job, you know, I was on the bottom rung of Procter & Gamble, and he was my, he was called a unit manager, and, and I guess part of his job responsibility as a unit manager was to train us you know, young salesmen to sell more, you know, to get out there, you know, and sell more. And so, um, you know, on a, on a very regular basis, maybe weekly, maybe, maybe twice a month, he would meet me in my, in my, um, my routes, uh, my, my, you know, I had all these stores that were assigned to me. I was in South Florida and, and, um, <clears throat> we had Winn-Dixie stores and we had, uh, public stores. If you've ever shopped at a Publix, we love Publix, but um, uh, Grand Union and Food Fair. They were all my stores. And so I would go in there. And so he would meet me at one of these stores and, and we'd stop and go to some sleazy little diner. And he would, uh, he would, in fact, one time, <clears throat> the time that I remember, we were in a Walgreens with, that had a soda fountain, a Walgreens that had, but it was uh, years ago. This is in, gosh, in the seventies. And, um, we sat in this little booth and, and what he did was he took, he took the placemat, and he turned the placemat over and he began to, you know, to doodle on it and show me how much peanut butter, peanut butter was one of my products. I was with the case food division at Procter and Gamble and, and Duncan Hines cake mix and Crisco shortening and oil and, and Jeff peanut butter. Those were my products. And, and, um, he was trying to show me how I could sell more peanut butter and, you know, in my, my, my district here, you know, and so what he would do, he says, now let's take this store right here, Jimmy. And he was writing all this stuff on the back. You know, you're, you know, I'm 22 years old and I know a whole lot more about frat parties and trying to throw out people stealing second than I did about the corporate bottom line. So he's trying to show me how to, you know, get out there and be a salesman. He's doing all, he said, let's take this store. This store sells, um, uh, $300,000 a week, which is roughly $16 million a year and, and, uh, and peanut butter, uh, uh, account, uh, according to the national averages, and he's writing all this stuff down. You're not supposed to be looking at this stuff and saying, and, um, and, uh, one tenth of one percent, which is $160,000 worth a year, and, uh, we've got 47% of market share, and, and that means, I mean, you ought to sell $100,000 worth of peanut butter to this store alone. And I'd look at that nincompoop and I'd say, um, when's the last time you tried to sell peanut butter in that store? I mean, it's a whole lot harder than you just did on that little sheet there. But I did know this much, ladies and gentlemen, as a just a child. I knew that I knew that if he came to me and he said, "Listen, don't worry about it. Do the best you can." You know, sell as much peanut butter as you can, but you know, don't let it, don't let it, don't let it bother you that much. I mean, go out there and, and try and, but it's no big deal. I knew he couldn't do that. Because I knew that if he did that, we wouldn't sell as much peanut butter. Some of you are looking at me this morning and you're saying, you're looking at me like I was looking at Woody Klein. 
You're saying, walk worthy of the Lord. It ain't that easy. You don't think I know that? But ladies and gentlemen, the last thing I will ever do for you is somehow tell you that the standards have been lowered. They have not. And we got way too many maggots in our mushrooms. worth his salt would be telling you this walk worthy walk worthy Our Father, I do pray that you will stir the people of Gracie Bay into a newer height, a newer level, a newer determination to, um, to not let things slide and slip and become ignored. Might we find that Jimmy Young isn't the standard and Gracie Van isn't the standard. But the standard is Christ Jesus the Lord. And we're going to have to lift up our sights just a bit. And whether there's money needed or whether there's evangelism that needs to be done, once, once the walk has begun to be worthy... It seems to me, O oh God, that that will all be cared for. Where I am wrong, O oh God, stop up the ears of your people. Where I am right, might they never forget a word I said. Would you do that, O oh God, for Jesus' sake? In whose name we pray.